Sunday. It's late. You've had a long day. I can see some of your eyes are more than a little heavy. Why make the effort with, to try and stick with me tonight? Well, we're continuing our series, walking through the book of Acts. It's the remarkable story of how we get from just a few believers, scared, hiding in a room, to the world we live in today where maybe a third of the world would choose to call themselves Christians. It's a remarkable journey, isn't it? From a few frightened to a third of the world. And this week we're going to look at one of the key guys in this epic story. And uh, we're going to listen to the Apostle Paul kind of set out his stall. He's going to explain for us the message that so obviously transforms lives, that transformed those first scared and hidden lives, that obviously still transforms lives today. If you call yourself a Christian here tonight, then there's more than just this life-transforming message on display for us as well. There's much for us to learn about how we can communicate it effectively. So, listen together as we hear the next section. I'm going to invite Matt now to come and read to us. And we'll take some time afterwards to consider. Let me pray as Matt comes to read. Lord God, may your word today speak to us. May we hear your voice And may Jesus challenge our lives. Amen. Okay, so tonight's uh, final Bible reading that Matt will be preaching through uh, can be found on page 1107 of the Red Pew Bibles, and it's from Acts chapter 13, verse 13 to 52. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think that I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that that are read every Sabbath. 
Though they found no proper ground for his death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, man. Well, the first thing I want us to notice tonight is how Paul gets to speak at all in this case. How does he get this opportunity to explain the good news? Well, he, he follows what seems to be very much his standard operating procedure. So when he shows up in a new place, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue, to the Jewish place of worship. But notice what he doesn't do. What he doesn't do is make a rush for the front. He doesn't go and wrestle the mic off the guy standing at the front. He doesn't bring a box so that he can stand on it over the side and, and shout at them. Instead, he arrives at the synagogue and he simply takes his seat along with everyone else. Things follow their normal course in the service. Now, he's a visitor and that's a culture that has an enormously high respect for visitors 
Uh, it was a matter of great importance to treat them well. And so it's not, it's not hugely surprising that actually he gets invited to speak out the back of that. And also, I guess he was a very highly qualified Jewish teacher. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the elite teachers of his day. And perhaps, perhaps he was known because of that, or perhaps he was wearing something that revealed a bit of his status within that community. Perhaps that's some of how he got to speak. But at the same time, it really does seem to be a hundred miles from the kind of brash, abrasive end of gospel presentation, doesn't it? Maybe think of some words from one of his fellow leaders, one of Jesus' other early followers, recorded in an early Christian letter in the Bible. Um, Peter, Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But he says to do this with gentleness and respect. He's ready to give an answer, but there's, there's gentleness and respect in the way he's doing it. Do you think that's there? And then once he's invited to speak, I think it's well worth us considering how he presents his message. He starts off with a, a brief recap of Israel's very long history. But it's not necessarily the story you or I would tell if we were familiar with Israel's history if we tried to summarize it in just a, a, a few short lines, I'm not quite sure we would pick the same ones he does. What does Paul say? Well, in, uh, in verse 17, he says Israel was chosen by God. It was made to prosper by God. It was led out of Egypt by God. In verse 18, it says it was cared for in the wilderness by God. It was planted in Canaan by God. Now, your translation might sound a bit more negative in verse 18. In these red ones we got in the pews in verse 18, it says, he endured their conduct in the desert. But if you look closer, there's a little footnote. And it says at the bottom, some manuscripts actually say he cared for. And the difference between the two words is a pie to a sigh. It's not very much. It's a, a tiny difference. And there's actually good evidence for the more positive presentation. So you get a resiliently positive presentation. God did this good thing for you. He did that for you. He did this other thing for you. And then he says they were given, they were given judges. They were given prophets. They were even given kings when they asked for them. Here's what I want you to notice. There are a lot of negative things that Paul could have said about Israel. There are a lot of negative things he could have said. He could have said their long stay in the wilderness, well, that was a consequence of their unfaithfulness their lack of faith. He could have said how time after time when God rescued them through a judge, just a short while later, they turned away from him and went back to worshiping idols. He could have said how when they asked for this king, what they did is they rejected God as their king. Or he could have said how their conduct, when they got into this land, they finally got into this land of Canaan, their conduct was so wrong that God threw them out of it into exile. He could have mentioned all these negatives, but he doesn't, does he? Now, it's important we see every single thing Paul says here is true. He's not doctoring Israel's history. This isn't like a quick edit of the Wikipedia page for Israel to put a positive spin on it. But he is carefully picking what he says. He is being selective about what he reports. He is deliberately presenting his message, telling the whole story with God as the primary actor telling the whole story about God's desire and work 
for his people, how God is faithful to his people. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Paul isn't at pains to point out how wrong these Jews have been? How flawed and rebellious Israel has been? Do you think that could be gentleness? Wisdom? Maybe even a a dose of respect in presenting the gospel perhaps? Like Peter recommended earlier, remember, always be prepared to give an answer, but do that with gentleness and respect. And I think, Christians, we can learn from this as we think about how we present the gospel to others, how we explain this good news about Jesus. Do we need to start by pointing out every single one of their failures? Is that, is that where it needs to start? Do we need to start by itemizing every place where the person we're talking to is out of conformity with what's planned? Cataloging every way in which they just like us, don't measure up? Or could we, be, could we be more gentle and respectful? Is there another way to present this good news that doesn't work in that direction? Now next, Paul moves on to talk about promises and fulfillment. He talks about how God does exactly what he said he was going to do, how he's told us ahead of time what's going to be happening. Look in, in verse 23, it's just over the page. He says, he brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, just as he had promised. He's drawing a line from this David, this greatest king of Israel, this summit of the nation of Israel, through to Jesus as a fulfillment of promise. You can see that the Jewish people actually were expecting a Savior when Jesus came to them. They were expecting somebody to come and deliver. Do you see in verse 25, John the Baptist is speaking and he says there's someone coming after them. He says to them, he says, I am not the one you're looking for. Now what does that let us know? It lets us know they were looking for someone. See, the Jewish people were expecting, they were expecting a savior or a deliverer. They'd been promised somebody who was going to come to rescue and they were looking diligently for that person. And there's Jesus following hot on the heels of John. There's loads more promising and foretelling and then fulfillment here isn't there down in verse 27 just a little bit further down the page says in condemning jesus the rulers fulfilled the words of the prophets more fulfillment there says in verse 29 they carried out all that was written about him more of this fulfillment just what he said was going to happen it's exactly what happens do you remember from The reading, Paul pulls out this promise of a holy one who will not see decay and connects that to Jesus, his body, not seeing decay in the grave, but being resurrected. Now, we don't have time to dig into all of this this evening, but one of the ways in which people have argued for many years in which we can argue for the strength of our faith is all of these promises, all of these foretellings, and all of the fulfillments that we find in Jesus. There's an enormous number. Some people count into the hundreds of these. And um, if you want to explore that a bit more, um, I'm around later, and uh, I'd love to point to a few more with you, but there's some amazing stuff here. But the summit of Paul's speech in the synagogue is verses 38 and 39. This is where everything's going and where it's all pointing. 
The reason Paul does this huge setup, the reason he does this presentation, he says, here's the history of Israel, here's all your promises. Why is he doing all this to get to this conclusion that Jesus brings a complete revolution in how we relate to God? Here's how Paul puts it. He says, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, a quick aside, what's this justification? It's one of those big theological words we like to use. It's just the opposite of condemnation. Justification, condemnation. So it's like declaring a legal verdict at the end of a court case. Condemnation is the verdict guilty. Justification declares the verdict innocent. Through Jesus, everyone who believes finds themselves declared not guilty. Even though their record shows otherwise, that's justification. And that's an outcome that was impossible without Jesus. That's the point of the second half of that sentence. He says it's a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. This kind of set of rules and regulations that the Jewish people lived under. Sounds too good to be true. Almost sounds unbelievably good. It's like a giant bill drops through your door. And then a moment later, a letter that says you don't have to pay. Too good to be true, right? It's, uh, I think that's the point of Paul's last quote in verse 41. He says, he quotes this other prophet saying, um, I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe if someone told it to you. Now, some of us have heard this news so many times. It doesn't strike us as unbelievable. It doesn't strike us as astonishing. It hardly even strikes us as good. But we've, we've lost the, the incredible nature of what's happening here, the remarkable thing that takes place. He's going to do something that we would never believe, even if someone told us. It's what Paul said happens through Jesus, this forgiveness, this justification, this not guilty, even though we're guilty, is amazing. Imagine getting an invite from the queen to come to tea. Just picking it up, having a look through it, it looks all gilded and nice, it's a very fancy piece of paper. But the queen doesn't really want to meet me, I'm sure the queen, I don't think the queen really wants to meet me, I bet it's a hoax. This is too good to be true. You drop it in the bin and you miss out on what could be your very nice tea, I imagine the queen drinks. You miss out on something really... Does it sound too good to be true? Does it sound too simple, too easy? Does this not require enough from us? I think sometimes this is a challenge for people looking at the Christian faith. This is it's too easy. It's too good. It's too simple. It's too straightforward. Surely it can't be that easy, but it is. Please don't just write this off tonight. It's really what's on offer through Jesus. It's the remarkable nature of the gospel we have. And in the story, thankfully, it seems that Paul's audience do grasp this as unbelievable, as remarkable, as incredibly exciting. They, they think it's exciting enough that they're willing to tell their neighbors and friends about it so that by the time they get together next week, it says almost the whole city is there to hear. And it was a pretty big city. 
wonder how they all fitted into the synagogue. Be a good problem to have, wouldn't it? Now, not everyone's for it, of course. Some oppose it. Some oppose it out of jealousy. That speaks about just how large this crowd suddenly was. Can you imagine in the Jewish synagogue, they're plugging away, talking about you know, the Mosaic law and how God loves his people and how you can join his loved and blessed people, plugging away year after year after year after year. And there are some Gentile believers in that synagogue. But not that many. And all of a sudden, Paul comes with this message about Jesus. And bam, the place is overflowing. I think we can sometimes feel that as we watch other people see wonderful fruit from the gospel. This completely inappropriate jealousy can spring up in us. But there's this this pressure, this resistance against Paul and against his speaking. And do you see how Paul responds to it? In verses 46 and 47, he pulls out, a Bible quote, just at the bottom of 1108. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's something we read already this evening. In the first reading this evening, we read those same words. A light for the Gentiles, that is a light for the not Jewish people. Really, that's a light for everyone else. A light for the nations. Or you might say, a light of the world. When Paul says, this is what the Lord has commanded us, I've made you a light for the nations. What's going on there? Well, we've got to take a look at the quote in its original context. So flip back with me to Isaiah 49. It's about in the middle of the Bible. It's page 736. Oh, 735. <clears throat> and we read this at the start of the service. Amazing passage. It seems like someone is talking to us. Someone is describing himself. It says, before I was born, the Lord called me from my birth. He's made mention of my name. Somebody's describing himself. And then in verse 6, this character is told by the Lord... I'll also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. That's the bit Paul picks up on in the synagogue. But who is it speaking in Isaiah? Who is it who's speaking? Who is it? Well, most Bibles, and these red ones, have little headings to help us navigate. And if you look back up, there's a little heading at the top of the chapter that says, The Servant of the Lord. This idea that a a servant is speaking comes from verse number 3 said to me, you are my servant in whom I'll display my splendor. You are my servant. So there's a servant speaking. But see in that very same verse, in verse 3, it says, you are my servant Israel. You're my servant Israel. So this is Israel that's going to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to all the non-Jewish people in the world. That would make sense. God's chosen people. That means he uses to see his salvation go from them to the ends of the earth. That would, that would make sense. But it's not quite that simple. Because in verse 6 right here, he says it's too small a thing to the servant, God says. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I've kept. If the servant is Israel... How can Israel be bringing back Israel? 
That doesn't quite make sense, does it? To restore Jacob, to bring back Israel. If the servant, if this light is Israel, well, how can that bring back Israel? So it's not, it's not quite Israel. Who, who could it be? Who could it be who both is Israel in some way and yet at the same time is to call the faithful of Israel back and to be a light to the Gentiles, to everyone else? Sunday school moment. It's Jesus. Do you remember that Sunday school story where somebody's talking about there's this creature and you know it's brown, it's got a bushy tail, it collects nuts and it likes to store them in trees. What is it, children? And the answer is, of course, well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but of course the answer is Jesus. But here the answer really is Jesus. <clears throat> Hang in with me. This is going somewhere. Okay. Jesus is the servant in this passage here. Jesus is this servant who's going to bring light to the nation. So why can Paul say, this is what the Lord has commanded us? How can Paul say that? Why does it make sense for Paul to say, the Lord's commanded us to be a light for the Gentiles? Is he trying to misrepresent? Is he trying to twist this quote and use it slightly wrong? No. That's the short answer. No, it's okay. It was written about the servant who turns out to be Jesus. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus came about the servant who would turn out to be Jesus. Yes, but there's a way in which the church, all the Christians, actually are Jesus. Now, if you were with us a few weeks back, um, for an earlier episode in Paul's story, you might remember his conversion story where Paul, uh, on the road to Damascus, has this supernatural experience of a light and Jesus speaks to him and he says to him, Saul, that's his other name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, says Jesus. But Paul hasn't been persecuting Jesus because Jesus has died and risen and gone to heaven. Paul's been persecuting his church. And yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? See, that radical identification Jesus has with his church. There's a sense in which the church, in which we are Jesus here on earth. There's a real sense in which that happens. And so, when Paul takes this quote, it's about Jesus, a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, and he applies it to himself and Barnabas. He's on solid ground. He's on solid ground. And we could take the same quote and we could apply it to us. We are to be a light, a light to the nations. And in fact, Jesus himself says exactly that. Some of you will remember Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. No mystery. So Paul and Barnabas are called to be light to the Gentiles. We, as Jesus' church, as his body here on earth, we are called to be light as well. So what? What does that actually mean for us? What does it mean to be light? Well, it's actually quite a helpful metaphor, a helpful word picture for us to think about. What does light do? What does light do? What happens when light comes? Well, it makes things visible. 
doesn't it? It helps you see things that you couldn't otherwise see. Like when my four-year-old daughter cries out in the middle of the night. I go into her room to rescue her, but alas, somehow she has covered the floor with an array of caltrops, also known as toys. And there's no way in the dark I can get to her bed safely. Because in the dark, I can't see them. I'm going to stand on them and be injured. But light, light reveals those hidden things. Light makes the, the pathway through clear to me. I can see the way to go. And I guess the Bible uses light as a metaphor in exactly that way. It talks about God's word as being a lamp for my feet and a light to my path, doesn't it? It shows me. It helps me see clearly the way to go. So when we are to be the light of the world, what are we doing? We're revealing. We're making known. We're making clear. We're showing the path to travel on. That leads me to the last thing I want to draw out of tonight's passage. We have this call to be a light for the nations, but what do we learn from Paul about how to do that practically? How to make things plain, how to show the path, how to make it easy for people to discern so that, as the quote finishes, we can bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, I think there's a bunch of wrong conclusions you could draw if you're not too careful. Well, remember, we talked through Paul's explanation of this good news. And there was a lot of mention of prophecy and fulfillment, wasn't there? There was a lot of use of Israel's sacred texts and connecting them. Lots of Jewish terminology, this law of Moses, this idea of justification. Do you think that's a pattern for how we are to be light? Is that a way in which we can go and reveal things? Make it easy for people to discern the path? Or in fact, do they actually oftentimes just raise more questions for the people around us in our lives? Or worse still, do they just get blank stares? Israel who? Scriptures? What are scriptures? Sin? Justification? What do you mean justification? Promise? Who promised me what? I think it's really important we see. Paul's presentation of the good news about Jesus here is bringing the light. He's clarifying, he's revealing, but it's a very, very tailored pattern. The very specific presentation of this good news about Jesus that we've got here, I think that's perhaps the most important element we should take away. The most important thing we can learn is that we need to be aware of who we are speaking to, of their background, of their worldview of their values, of their ways of reasoning and arguing and discussing and interacting. We need to think about how we represent and present the gospel so it's not lost in translation. You see, the way Paul presents the good news here, it's radically different to how he's going to present it in pagan Lystra in just the next chapter. Next week we're going to read about this. The way he explains the gospel in Lystra is completely different radically different to the way Paul explains the gospel in Athens, the land of thinking and the mind. That's hugely important for us to get as Christians. Don't just trot out the same presentation of the message in every context. That's not at all the pattern we're shown in the book of Acts. 
We don't just have one potted summary that this is the gospel and I must explain it to you in this way and this is the only way to communicate this message. We actually need to think about where those we're speaking to come from. What their world is. What makes sense to them. How we can communicate. How we can reveal. How we can make plain to them. How can we be light? How can we be light? For example, something very fundamental to Christianity is this idea of sin, right? That's a really crucial building block. So we're very familiar with as Christians, but it's something that can really not connect well out in the world. When we talk about it with our friends who don't know Jesus, when we walk the streets, I think there are very, very many in this city who do not see themselves in any way having a sin problem. Not at all. They think that they're the good people and that the sinners are somewhere else. If they think of sin at all, they think they're fine, upstanding citizens. They're not weighed down by guilt. Where when Paul talks to this Jewish audience, the concept of sin and the need for sin to be dealt with was just a fundamental part of their worldview and it's not there. If we treat the people around us like an ancient Jewish audience... If we assume they get this, that they live under a holy God's law, that they breach that law, that they're in need of reconciliation, if we assume they get that, it's like speaking a foreign language. It's like me giving you a, a computer programmer explanation of the gospel. If I say to you, um, gosh, you know, the trouble you have is all this recursion. It's all this recursion in your life because what it's doing is blowing out your stack and it's really fragmenting your heap. And if you carry on this way, you know, you're going you're gonna to end up with a seg fault. You really need to rewrite this to be iterative rather than recursive. That's how you need to think. Does that make any sense to you? Thank you. It makes sense to some of us. I'm excited about that. We run this risk of thinking we're really connecting when we do not connect at all. We're speaking another language. We're dealing in a set of concepts that don't exist. We're using terms that don't connect. We've got to start from where they actually are. Right, imagine somebody asks me for directions to Charlotte Chapel, and I say, well, it's really easy. From Charlotte Square, you just get onto Rose Street. Well, that's brilliant if they're on Charlotte Square, but if they're in South Queens Ferry, it's not going to help them a bit. I can tell them all the times I like. Look, from Charlotte Square, all you need to do is walk to Rose Street. And they're like, Charlotte Square? I'm in South Queens Ferry, mate. We've got to start from where people are. You can't tell them, well, if I want to get to God, I wouldn't start from where you are. I wouldn't start from there. I don't know. It's terrible. We've got to understand where people are. We have to see a bit more of how they see. And can I tell you what? This actually takes some work. Do you know, when we send people to other countries to reach out with the gospel, well, we're very aware that we have this challenge. Um, We talk about it as kind of cross-cultural mission. We think very hard about how are the concepts about Jesus and the gospel, how are these going to connect to the world that the people I'm trying to reach live in? What is their world? Let me understand what they think about. My wife's been reading a book about a mission to the headhunters. And it's um, just fascinating how they go about um, reaching out to these people who have a completely different world. They started trying to talk to them about sin, but, you know, when you're... One of your major tools of your trade is chopping your enemies' heads off and eating them. Then 
It's not, it's not the same concept. So they explored different ways of connecting. They listened to people's stories and what was important to them and what they felt were issues in their country. And they discovered that actually there was a lot of interest in ancestors. And so they hooked to Adam and Eve, our ultimate ancestors, and started talking from there. They, they, they looked at the, the fascination these headhunters had with living longer and they spoke about the blessing of eternal life. They found ways to connect that resonated with the culture. Now we think that's obvious when we send somebody to Peru or when we send somebody to Moldova or, or even when we send somebody to Graceman, we think, well, it's obvious you're going to have to do some work. But we need to remember the people we live with, our friends, those we love, those we work with, well, there we're engaged in the same cross-cultural mission. We're engaged in the same cross-cultural mission there. We must listen and learn and understand. And we can work from there how to present, how to actually be light that reveals. How not just to say, look, to get to Charlotte's Chapel, it's just over there from the square. But to say, well, if you're in South Queensferry, the first thing you need to know is that the A90 is there. The A90 is there. So I have a challenge for Christians here this week. I want to challenge you to think cross-cultural missionary. Think about the world your friends and your connections and those you love live in. Think about in that world, what are their priorities? What are their values? How do they reason and argue? What assumptions do they make? What things do they take as fundamental? Consider how for them you could be light. How can you reveal? How can you show the pathway in a way that will actually help them to walk on it? Don't settle for just one way to tell this remarkable good news to everyone. Learn from Paul. The way we present the good news of Jesus depends on who we're presenting it to. The way we make it plain, the way we bring light, and that, that's how we bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at the impact here. It's remarkable, the impact here. The whole city shows up. Almost the whole city to hear the news next time. In verse 48, all who are appointed for eternal life believed. In verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. And this region, um, the city in Antioch's in, is enormous. It's one of the really big Roman provinces. 52, the disciples are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When we bring light, when we make the path to Jesus plain, the city's turned upside down. I'm going to invite Rachel to come and pray for us now.